happy then some of you might start sitting a little bit more toward me. Social distancing, that's right. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, this, this evening may your word dwell in us and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. On uh, June 6, 1944, the Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in what became known as D-Day. And their objective was to create a European beachhead, a position from which they would launch their mission into the rest of France and ultimately Europe. In Acts 16 here, Uh, in Paul's second missionary journey, in effect he creates a European beachhead for the gospel. That's helpful to to, to think about it in that way. A beachhead for the gospel which which the mission of Lord Jesus would go forth from. So here is a map of the second journey. I realise that you won't see the details there, uh, but there's the the bigger picture and here's a slightly more zoomed in picture. I'm hoping you can see Philippi up there. You'll notice, however, as Val read, that on this missionary journey, it's no longer Paul and Barnabas. Do you notice that? But Paul and his companions. You see, at the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, whom we read about in that first missionary journey, they actually had this clash over whether to bring John Mark or not. Uh, And Barnabas, who turns out to be his cousin, John Mark's cousin, wants to give him a second chance, but Paul wants to hold the line. And so you read this in verse 39 of chapter 15, that they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So the relationship between these two great men of God had had failed. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that conflict is real, even in churches, even in ministries. And sometimes separation is the only way for the gospel to go forward. And in this case, now that they've separated, there are now two missionary teams instead of one. But of course... Uh, from here on, Acts tracks the journey of Paul and his companions. And on this occasion, his companions are Silas, Timothy, and it would also appear Luke as well. Did you notice that in verse 10, Luke, the writer of Acts, begins to use the language of we. We. And so we assume now Luke has joined the journey, and for the most part in Acts 16, um, Luke writes of their time in Philippi. And Philippi was a very important and wealthy city. It was a good beachhead because it was a good gateway for the rest of Europe. But did you notice that they never actually intended to go there? The Holy Spirit led them there. Verse 6, they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. How were they kept? Um, Perhaps they felt uneasy and they sought peace in prayer. That's often how the Holy Spirit directs us in our day-to-day lives. But the truth is that we don't know. And nor do we know why they were kept from the province of Asia. Why 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 God closed this particular door. And we may never know. When I was in year 12, I began preparing began planning for university, and I desperately wanted to go to Sydney University to study uh, a Bachelor of Primary Education. It was a good course. More importantly, though, most of my friends were going there. 
Um, and so I, I, I wanted to go, um, but I didn't get in. I didn't get in. Instead, I was accepted uh, into the Australian Catholic University. Uh, it, was, it was a hole. Uh, but it was a good course, but it was a hole. Um, I was bitterly disappointed, right? And actually, I was a little angry with God at the time. Now, I may never know why it was that God closed that door. But in time, I began to see why he opened this other door. Can you relate? We may have good plans. Sometimes God has other plans. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. On this occasion, the Spirit has closed the door to the province of Asia, but he opens up another door. Verses 9 and 10. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach a gospel to them. And so we understand that the, the, the mission is spirit-led, right? It is spirit-led. He leads them to Macedonia and then on to Philippi. But the mission is also spirit-empowered because while they are there, we see the spirit at work in them and also in others. And we begin to see not necessarily why that door was closed, but why this door is opened. And so arriving in Philippi, uh, they meet a number of women, one of whom was named Lydia. Think about it. The Holy Spirit had led them to this place, as opposed to the province of Asia, to this place at this time, not so that thousands would hear the gospel and respond, but that this one woman would hear the gospel and respond. Isn't that interesting? We often think of uh, God's sovereignty and God's providence on a large scale, sort of in broad brushstrokes. But here we see God working very intricately and intentionally to bring this one woman, Lydia, to faith. And you know, you know what? Whether you can see it or not, God has worked just as intentionally and just as intricately in your life to bring you to faith even though you, you may never see the bigger picture. But why Lydia, we may ask. Uh, well, Lydia had a lot going for her, right? Um, she was probably a very wealthy woman. She ran a business selling uh, purple cloth, likely to the wealthy and even to the royals. But notice that she is not to credit for her coming to faith. She is not to credit for her coming to faith. Verse 16 there. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You see, at every turn, the work of salvation is God's. It is he who does a decisive work of opening up the heart. We can't do that for ourselves. We can't do that for others, even. We are not to credit for our coming to faith. Whatever the circumstances, whatever your story, Our salvation is entirely dependent upon the work of God. We believe in Christ because he's appointed us to eternal life. Remember that back in Acts 13, verse 48? But also because he has opened our hearts to believe here in chapter 16, verse 14. And so Lydia and her household become the first European converts. 
Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke next encountered a possessed slave girl. Now, I must say that I'm finding these stories in the Bible more and more interesting given where I now live. I think it was yesterday, actually, that the psychic expo was on, just a few doors down. In this case, this girl earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. That's what you read in verses 17 to 18. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And then he goes on. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirits, an evil spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. You beauty, right? Free advertising. Well, it's a sort of advertising that can do more harm than good. Because in a way, Satan was stealing their thunder. It wasn't false advertising as such, but it was distracting. What she said was true, but the focus wasn't on the truth, was it? It was on her. It was on her ability, or it was on the missionaries themselves. It's a very subtle way of undermining the message. And it's the sort of effect that celebrity preachers, megachurch pastors, unintentionally, or sometimes intentionally, can generate. What they say may be true, but the focus isn't on the truth. It's on them. And so it becomes a sort of personality cult. But if the focus is on them, it's not on Jesus. And so Paul can't stand the attention any longer. But the owners of this slave girl, their attention was elsewhere. Their attention was in their pockets, in their wallets, right? Because this healing spelled financial disaster for them. When the owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Paul had struck a nerve, and it's a sensitive nerve for every single one of us. There is a thread that runs throughout Luke and Acts. So Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. There's a thread that runs throughout Luke and Acts that says, beware. Money is bewitching. It distracts you from the gospel. As we learn from Lydia's story, it can be used for good, but it's bewitching as well. It can distract you from the gospel. Because no doubt, think about it, the owners of this girl would have heard her proclamation. She would have heard her shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And they would have known that she was speaking the truth. And what do they do? They check their wallets. They check their online bank account. They check their online stockbroking account. And when they realise that their uh, income stream has been slashed, their hearts sink and they falsely accuse Paul and Silas and rile up the crowd so that the magistrates order them, and order them stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. You see, once again, Luke goes into great detail to describe their predicament. This time, it's... Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas had no reason to expect a miracle. Yes, 
uh, Peter, God had delivered Peter from prison. Has this gone? Yes. Paul, pardon, back in chapter Acts chapter 12, God had delivered Peter from prison. Remember that? But he didn't deliver James. James was executed. And so they had no reason to expect a miracle. And yet, they find themselves at about midnight singing and praying. Why? How? Uh, Tertullian, an early church leader and writer, I think he summed it up best. He writes this, The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Because they knew whose hands their lives are in. I sort of imagine them singing the song that we're going to sing straight after the sermon here, Amazing Grace, My Chains Have Gone, even before their chains had gone. My grandmother, whose faith I greatly admired, spent her last couple of weeks in a uh, hospital in a small town in rural New South Wales called Dunedoo. Yes, New South Wales has some strange names too. I think Queensland still wins. They need to win at something, so we'll give them that. Uh, but she spent her last few weeks of her life in a small little hospital in Dunedoo, and in her final day, she insisted upon singing hymns. Now, she had a terrible singing voice. It was that bad. But it was beautiful to, to hear of my dying grandmother sing of her faith in Jesus. And it was incredibly encouraging to the many believers around her. And at the same time, incredibly compelling to the many non-believers who overheard, those that took care of her, those that lay on their deathbeds next to her or in the other room. They wanted what she wanted, peace and joy even in the face of death. Faith, that is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, especially in the face of suffering, is conspicuous. Non-believers are, are drawn to this faith like moths to a light. And faith, combined with integrity, is almost irresistible. And in Paul and Silas, the jailer actually sees both at work. A violent earthquake releases the prisoners from their chains and from their cells. And yet this time there's no prison break. Paul and Silas stay put. And in so doing, what do they do? They actually save the jailer's life. He was prepared to kill himself because the punishment would have seen him killed anyway. But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Earlier, the possessed slave girl had proclaimed, what did she say? These men, they're telling you the way to be saved. And now this jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's one of the most important questions in the New Testament. And the brief expression here, the brief answer that is given, it's probably a summary of what he actually said, but it expresses a core of what we must do to be saved. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not you may be saved, but you will be saved. What must I do to be saved? I've got to be honest, I don't hear that question often nowadays. I don't know about you, your experience might be different. I don't hear that question often. Because people find the very implication offensive. Why must I be saved? And yet this is a question we would love to hear, isn't it, from our loved ones, from those whom we know and love. Well, I want to think about for a second what prompted the jailer to ask this question, okay? What prompted the jailer to ask this question? I've got three things. He'd been exposed to the basic contours of Christianity, hadn't he? He would have heard firsthand or secondhand the proclamation of the slave girl. He would have heard Barnabas, uh, sorry, pardon, Paul and Silas praying and singing in their cells. So he had the basic contours of Christianity. But also, he personally met faithful and respectable Christians who cared for his welfare. And three, he experienced a moment of crisis. He had this trifecta, right? Christianity, Christians, and crisis. Now, I've heard countless of stories that actually parallel... This may be your story. So as we are praying for our unbelieving family, friends or neighbours, be mindful of these and ask yourselves, well, do they know the basic contours of Christianity? Am I being a faithful and loving, a compelling Christian witness? And am I prepared to be present and clear in a moment of crisis? Now, of course, God can and does open up hearts aside from a crisis, right? I don't think Lydia was in a crisis. But here we see a pattern to the way that God tends to work through us to draw others to himself. What must I do to be saved? And friends, if you are sitting here and if you've never asked that question and you wish to ask that question of someone tonight, ask it. Because it's the most important question you'll ever ask. And toward the end of this passage, you have this beautiful expression in verse 46. Pardon, verse 34. Where the jailer was filled with joy because he had become to believe, come to believe in God. Filled with joy. Well, these three mini-stories here describe the beginnings of the church in Philippi. And what a church it must have been. Think about it. There's a rich businesswoman and her household... Perhaps a slave girl, a Gentile jailer and his family, and probably also some ex-inmates. It's a testament to the fact that the true gospel attracts and transforms people from all walks of life. Every kind of person. 
And it's also a testament to the fact that the church in any time or place represents a pretty motley crew. And yet are unified by and in Christ. Friends, that's us. However small or large our differences, in Christ Jesus we are brothers and sisters. One of the great things about reading through the New Testament is that while you read of the birth of many of the churches in Acts, you get to read also of Paul's sort of follow-up letters to these churches that he planted. (coughs) Philippi was destined to become one of Paul's most beloved congregations. And in his letter to the Philippians, he was able to look back and say things like this. I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You notice, this, this is right at the beginning of Philippians. <clears throat> and notice his immediate recollection of the way the Philippians had shared in the gospel from the beginning. And they clearly continued to partner with Paul in the gospel by financially supporting him. They even send him one of their own at one stage. They even send one of their own, Epaphroditus, to, to work alongside Paul. And the church in Philippi actually becomes sort of a key church in supporting the spread of the gospel. We have every reason to believe that Lydia, someone like Lydia, continued to financially support not only the ministry in Philippi, but also Paul's missions. We may never know why the door to the province of Asia was closed at that time. But we are beginning to see why this other one was open, aren't we? There are many moments in his letter to the Philippians, actually, that would have reminded them of Paul's time in Philippi. Uh, Paul actually writes Philippians while he's in jail again, and he writes this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me is actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ Jesus. God continues to use even imprisonment for the advance of the gospel. And we see that in Acts 16, don't we? But clearly he does it elsewhere as well. And again, recalling perhaps his time in the jail in Philippi where he and Silas pray and sing, he writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evidence Evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As the musos come on up, let me... um, Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we do thank you. The Holy Spirit leads and empowers the Great Commission. We thank you that at this time, in this place, you open this door 
to see Lydia come to faith, to see the slave girl rid of her evil spirit, to see this jailer and his household come to faith. We thank you that your providence, yes, we can see it on large brushstrokes, but it's also very fine and very detailed and has worked in each of our lives to bring ourselves to faith. We thank you that salvation is entirely your work. And we pray that this truth might, might live in us this week and that we might be considering our friends who are in a very similar position to perhaps the jailer, who perhaps even now might be experiencing a moment of crisis. We pray that we'll be present and clear as we explain to them the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.